I'm Tony. And I'm Will. This is Tobophilia, episode one, Locals Only. Alright, so uh, you're going to go on the Bright Angel Trail. You're going to take the uh, cutoff for Clear Creek. And from there, I swing north up to Port Angeles. <laughs> you, wanna, you want me to tell you how many buses you have to take? And then uh, you're going to go up uh, about two miles. Trail will sort of bear off to the right. And you're going to go look for the break through the red wall. And just before the bridge over the Elwha River, um, you can scramble up the south side. Like a course basically southeasterly. Walk a little bit more. And then when you get tired, you still have more to walk. Uh, and basically, you're going to look for some rock fall uh, off a roof about 30 feet up. There's a low-angle ramp. Take a quick rest there, maybe a quick snack. The trailhead is about a mile to the hot spring. Hike or you can bike if you bring a mountain bike. And then uh, you're looking for an old pole about 20 feet up. You're kind of just going to climb up like a little like sort of mini gully. And that's the start of the route. That's it, We asked a few of our friends to give us directions to a place that they know well. For this episode, we wanted to dig into what it means to be a local, because for us, local status is deeply connected to intimate knowledge of a place. The best camping spots, local powder stashes, cheap happy hour, things that you only get to know by spending a lot of time somewhere. In this episode, we wanted to look into how we define locals, and along the way, we confront some of our own preconceptions. It turns out that local identity is a little more nuanced than we might have imagined. Stick around. So we want to kick off the episode by introducing you guys to three folks who we went out and talked to about these issues of what it means to be a local. These people are friends of ours, they're friends of friends, they're community members, and we want you guys to meet them. Hi, my name is Matt Lanning. I'm Allison Miller. I'm Gabe Joseph. So these three folks are going to help us through this conversation by sharing their experiences and their stories about what it feels like to be a local or maybe what it feels like to become one. I met Matt Lanning when I was living in Colorado, and he was one of the first people I thought of as a real, true local. Born in Aspen, raised in Telluride, Colorado, currently residing in Aspen, seeing the elk range as much as possible, and I work for a fabulous tequila company called Suerte Tequila. You can find it all over the country. Our next guest, Allison, is someone we met through a friend here in Washington and has become a local leader in one of Washington's most well-known climbing communities. My day job is being an architect. I have my own business. I am also the president of Leavenworth Mountain Association, a local climbing advocacy nonprofit. And last but not least, Gabe is a friend of ours from back in school and has moved through a series of interesting places and jobs around the West over the past few years and has some good stories to tell. I am a software engineer and former dirtbag recently living in Santa Fe, New Mexico. In all three of these interviews, Will and I tried to ask pretty similar questions to get at the same ideas in all three conversations. And so throughout the episode today, we're going to play you the responses of all three of these folks together to try to get an idea of how different perspectives look at this issue of locals and locals only. We're going to kick things off with Matt and Allison. We asked them to describe when they first felt like a local in the place that they live in. Uh, July 3rd, 1971, when I was born where Hunter Longhouse now sits, when that was AVH. I mean, you know, I was born in Aspen, but I grew up in Telluride. My dad was the first director of ski school over there. So my, my identity is as a Telluride local. 
but my desire of where to live and my adult sense of being is 100% in Aspen. I considered, I would probably consider myself a local from like within months of moving to Leavenworth because I immediately invested myself, literally and figuratively, invested in this community and I, I called it my home. Like, I, I moved around a lot growing up, and, and Leavenworth was really the first place that I was like, this is my home, and I'm staying here. I feel like that makes me a local, by my definition, <laughs> but not everyone would agree. Plenty of people would say, I'm not a local, and I never will be, because, because I wasn't born and raised here. I moved here as an adult. I don't consider myself unique from someone who moved here as fast as they could, whether that be during schooling and it wasn't their choice and their parents moved them here, whether they moved here out of high school and didn't even go to college because all they wanted to do was ski, or whether they went through a full education cycle, started a job and moved here, you know, in their 20s or even moved in their 40s and they've been here for 20 years now. And I don't consider my role in the community or my opinion about what it means to be a local, to be any different than somebody that cares as much about the community as I do. Allison and Matt both feel like locals in the places that they live in for one reason or another. But Gabe is new to Santa Fe, and we were curious about asking him what makes a local a local. It's never something to cross my mind in terms of what those specific benchmarks would be for feeling like a local in a place, but they certainly exist. There are also a lot of degrees to it too. To me, really that the first benchmark is probably just when you run into people that you know, coincidentally, going through normal activities in in life where I come back from a run and I'm like, oh, that car looks familiar that's parked next to mine. And then like, oh, there turns out my friend is was sitting with her dog uh, 20 feet away from me. Um, And then we go hang out and like, oh, hey, let's go make dinner. Um, Like that, that is one of the biggest One of the things that makes me most feel like perhaps I actually live somewhere or belong there, but I think that's just kind of the first, the first step to it. And I don't know if I know what comes next (laughs) because it's been a while since I have been anywhere longer than it takes to get to that. To me, it's mostly like if I meet someone and they seem to know where everything is or can talk about like, oh, this is where you should go mountain biking. That to me would be my measure of them being a local. Just like, oh, you know everything here. You must have been here for a long time. This might seem kind of obvious, but clearly locals experience a place differently than visitors. When we posed this idea to Allison, Matt, and Gabe, we found that each of them chose to highlight a different aspect of this division between visitor and local. Allison claims local status in Leavenworth, Washington, a small town with a big reputation for long alpine routes and stiff boulder problems. Every weekend, Seattleites like Will and I make the trip over the mountains to Leavenworth, where some residents grumble about the increasing flood of what they call Westsiders in their town. But Allison thinks it isn't so clear-cut. Like everyone on this side of the mountains refers to all of the like more populated areas on the other side of the mountains as the west side. It's just everything's the west side. Um, and people, people love to just blame all the problems on the west side. And it's like, you know, oh, we started finding more and more 
poop in the boulders, and it must be all the west side climbers, and, and look at all these cars, and look at all these campfire rings, because people can't find places to camp, and they're just making a mess, it must be the west siders, and, and it's like, that was you a year ago, wasn't it, you know, and like, yes, you don't, like, you live here now, and you feel this ownership, and you take care of this place, and that's awesome, and they're a local, and I appreciate that, I have no issue with it, but it turns it's easy for that idea of like, well, now I'm a local to turn into this like, well, if you're not a local, then you're causing the problem. Every, so every spring, LMA, Love and North Mountain Association, does a Icicle Canyon cleanup where we provide supplies like trash bags and people show up and we assign them to a section of road or a trailhead and they pick up trash. And every single year, we find a giant pile of chiladas, like Budweiser chiladas. Like, I mean, yeah, we find, like, bag after bag after bag of, like, just beer cans in general. But specifically, like, a quarter of the beer cans we pick up are chiladas. And we've all become very suspicious that this is one, that there's, like, the chilada drinker. And there's, like, 50-plus cans every year. I'm like, I'm pretty sure that somebody who lives around here because they're driving up the icicle 50 times a year minimum and throwing a chilada out the window every time, like they probably live here. And people are just like, oh, the Westsiders are trashing our home. And it's like, I, I don't think, you know, like people just move here from the west side and I don't think their behavior suddenly changes dramatically simply because they move here. Because they moved here because they already loved this place and they already and they wanted to have that ownership and they already cared about this place. So so it seems like a strange distinction to be like, it can't be the locals that are causing these problems. And I think the the idea of like local status and are you a local, are you not a local can really kind of exacerbate that problem of like us versus them. It's all their fault, you know? <laughs> So it's safe to say that no one wants to be the chilada drinker in their community. Allison's story shows us that caring about somewhere is valuable in creating a sense of local identity, even if you live elsewhere. However, Matt reminded us that when it comes to some activities, familiarity and an unhurried attitude are essential for making informed, safe decisions. I think that the way that I would sum that up is locals, I'm not going to say that locals don't check boxes, but locals check a far fewer boxes in the spring, for example, or midwinter than people who travel to, in my case, the Elks. And they come to me ahead of time because they know I ski here, whether they know me or not, reach out to me on Instagram or text me and say, hey, can you send me photos? I'm coming to ski Landry Pyramid and Capital in three days. Whereas there are people that have lived in the valley for 20 years who are exceptional mountaineers and exceptional skiers, and it just hasn't lined up for them. These are also not people that are willing to go at all costs. They just, their timing was good. And I think that as locals, we're able to ski most of the things that we ski in good conditions, or at least the consequential lines in in good conditions, or at least in favorable slash survivable conditions. And we're not under the pressure or the time constraints of knowing that we actually do have the next day or the next weekend or the following month 
to achieve that goal, or more importantly, the next season. And I'm not saying everybody has ignored the risk as they come into our valley, but I think people are willing to push their luck immeasurably farther when they're visiting a location. To me, what differentiates a local from a visitor when it comes to backcountry use is there is no pressure on me. There are locals that have pressure on them to accomplish things. I'm not one of them, but there are definitely a lot of visitors that put a lot of pressure on themselves to achieve a goal in a short window of time, regardless of the conditions. Aspen is known for having some of the steepest, most technical 14,000 foot mountains in the country, and people come from far and wide to climb them. As an Aspenite, Matt is all too familiar with how things can go wrong for those unfamiliar with these high peaks. Last summer here in the Elks, we had six fatalities on two highly regarded and highly technical 14ers. And with all due respect to those that have passed, I think that sends a real message about how an abundance of information puts people at risk sooner than they should be. And I think that the process of learning how to travel in the mountains is a way to, to slow that process down to a point where you don't go into those higher exposure locations until you know what you're getting yourself into. And again, I, I know some of the people that passed away last year and I've learned a lot about the others. And uh, I just hope that people take that as a lesson and learn that the steps are the important part of being in the outdoors, not the summits. So Matt and Allison come at this question from different angles. On the one hand, uh, what I hear from Allison is that it's definitely possible to transition from a visitor to a local, uh, and that sometimes not all locals hold the same values of stewardship over the place. Yeah, and Matt kind of brought a different perspective. He was thinking that visitors can sometimes take unnecessary risks and can face difficult consequences as a result of just not knowing as much about the place as a local might know. Yeah, and so we wanted to know what it's like to be in the process of becoming a local somewhere. So we reached out to Gabe, uh, and what he told us was that in order to establish himself as a member of his new community, he found it very important to personally explore his new surroundings as much as possible. When I was trying to figure out how to live in Anchorage, I was like completely, you know, would just like read the like trail maps and or not really trail maps, but just maps of like the Chugach um, right outside of Anchorage at night because I wanted to know where everything was. I wanted to know the names of the peaks. Um, I felt very committed to building my local knowledge really quickly because I felt really, really attached and drawn to the place. I think that the route to becoming more of a local is probably 80% time. And then the other bit, you get to decide how much energy you invest into it, but it would really come from continuing that process of just kind of throwing yourself at things. Um, and like, Oh, if you don't, you don't know, you don't know this area. Well, then you just go there. And if you can't find someone who to take you there, who knows it, you just go yourself and see what you figure out. Um, because I think that one just expands your knowledge a lot. And two then makes for, for the people, for those for those locals who won't go, won't even speak to you until you've, you know, run this line or whatever, um, it it brings you more credibility in their eyes, and so I think it, it can also let you get get you into the community faster. The more that you're going out and like investing your own energy and trying to making your own mistakes, um, just as everyone else did in their route to becoming local. 
Gabe recognizes the importance of investing time and effort into a place in order to feel more of a local connection to it. But often new places have their own set of specific activities and pursuits. And this has been a challenge for Gabe as a new resident of Santa Fe. I do absolutely think that mountain biking is the primary summer activity here. And that's been difficult for me since I don't mountain bike. And in fact, like through not mountain biking for long enough, had sort of come to be just opposed to mountain biking and really had no interest in it. Um, and so discovering that I might in fact need to learn to mountain bike is rather upsetting. Um, but I, I do think it's interesting because I feel like any other place that I've been, I've always been um, rel- like conversant enough in any of the activities that people like to do, whether it's climbing, running, skiing, boating of some sort, that it's easy to, to join in on what other people are doing. Um, and so this is a new experience of, of realizing just how limiting it is to not do this activity. And you know, other people who I meet are saying, oh, we're going riding this weekend. Like a bunch of us are going for a ride. And I'm like, well, I don't really do that. So I guess I just won't interact with you. Um, and thus for that reason, I've been renting and borrowing mountain bikes. And now at this point, I'm going to need to get one because they really, really seems necessary. And I'm very much open to it in that there are a number of things that perhaps other people wouldn't think are fun to do on a mountain bike that I'm now imagining would be quite fun to do on a mountain bike around here. I think it was, it was, I hadn't really experienced that before in terms of how much just simply not doing the activity or not doing an activity competently would restrict you from being friends with people who did um, just because that's what they do all the time. And so if you can't spend any time with them, how are you be friends with them? Many places have connections to specific pursuits. Think sailing in San Francisco or fishing in Florida. And frankly, in the communities that we've spent time in, we've noticed the trend of protectionism around the things that make the place special. Whether it's mountain bike trails, camping spots, or ski lines, locals have a tendency to keep some spots secret. So the, the reason why I don't tend to post locations is not because I'm trying to keep people out of my stash. I'm happy when people get out and ski. I mean, of course, we're out in the middle of nowhere. We like to have the, the, the serenity and the solitude. I'm not upset about people being out there. I'm just not interested in putting another picture of Capitol Peak on the cover of a magazine and giving and, and accelerating somebody's path towards being in that zone. I have spent time skiing in the backcountry, and at no point, A, would I have ever asked the question because I know better. B, do I think anybody would have given me the answer on how to get into something or where to go? What I would ask is, hey, when you went in there, I know that choke is pretty narrow. Is it a waterfall or is it snow? And at that point, they can say, oh, no, no, no. Buddy was in there yesterday. They skied it or he was in there right before the last storm and there's more snow in there now. You should be good to go. I don't want to be responsible for providing information to someone that doesn't have a skill set or doesn't have the things that are going to allow them to be safe. So if I may, I'm going to give you an example without a location to give you an idea of what I mean by this. I have a very good friend who lives in Boulder, who skis the backcountry a ton, has been skiing the backcountry for 20 plus years, had skied this zone before his Facebook background picture was from standing on top of this point. And all he was asking me for was, I'm coming into your area. I want to go for a solo ski tour. I figure this is a good zone. How are the conditions? And I said, yeah, dude, of course. I just skied there the other day. 
the conditions are decent to good. There's a storm coming. It might get better. I'm not going to give you much information on stability because it's going to change. But I literally sent him a GPS coordinate of this is where we parked and this is where the skin track was that day. But you know where you're going. Have a great time. That turned into him showing up alone, going up the skin track that other people had gone up and then going over the backside of that ridge, thinking that he knew how it would wrap around and being wrong and spending the night out in the snow and ending up coming out about 30 miles away on the highway or about 15 miles away in the backcountry. We all went out essentially on a body recovery the next day. We didn't think there was any way he lived through it. And he was fortunate enough to have lived, but that was a situation where I provided some information to someone who knew the area and just straight out made a mistake and had, I mean, the, the guilt in my being when I found out that that was him that was gone, I was like, shit, I gave him a, a trailhead coordinate and snow conditions saying that I had just skied it. Like that was enough to ruin my day. And Fortunately, the next day, the day got a whole lot better, and I talked to him and chewed him out for being an idiot and not making better decisions skiing by himself. But, you know, we laugh about it now because he lived. But I think that is the gist of what you just asked me is I don't want, I don't want the guilt. I don't want the, the weight on my shoulders of having given somebody information that put them in a situation they weren't comfortable with. Yeah, people don't really like to share very much. You know, people, they move here and then immediately are like, what are all these other people doing here? And it's like, well, how are they that different than you, you know? And yeah, there's like visitors that are there for their ticklets versus people who climb here all the time, whatever. But it's, but it's really tricky to say, like, how do you determine who's, who's in and who's out? And what, is the, what are the qualifications for being, for being allowed that secret knowledge of the new crag versus, you know, what what defines the people who shouldn't have access to that information. And the goal is just to avoid overcrowding. And you definitely see a lot of protection whenever new boulders are developed. Or in this area, there's a lot of like mountain biking. There's a lot of trail building and people are very secretive about their new trails, you know, very secretive about route development and climbing. And I think a lot of that, it's not really like, local versus not it's just not wanting a lot of other people it's wanting to kind of keep it to yourself you know it's like the developers and their friends then it spreads to their friends friends but you kind of still feel like you're keeping it to this known controlled group of people this conversation with Allison arose from a local controversy when a new guidebook for Leavenworth climbing included a few areas closely guarded by locals. We asked her how she felt about the decision to spread information to such a wide audience. But that, that surprised me because I know that the developers of some of those crags were pretty adamant about those areas not being published because they didn't want them to be crowded. My understanding, I don't know them personally, but I believe they're from the West Side. And it's funny, they only shared the route information with locals, and it was kind of getting passed around among locals. But this all started with people from the West Side developing these areas. Another example of this protectionism came from our conversation with Matt, 
Remember that story about providing ski beta to a non-local? The first time he said it, it sounded a little different. A friend of mine from Boulder who has skied in the zone before reached out to me and asked me for beta on he I know he had skied there, but his, his background picture on Facebook is a picture of him standing on top of He's been up there before. Is near Aspen, and it's a place that... Actually, can you, if I may, start over on that? Because the guys are going to slice my balls off if I use that word. So what did we just hear there? I mean, it to me, it sounded like Matt pretty actively started talking about a specific area and a specific group of people and then realized that he didn't want to share that information. And so he redacted it, which we then supported by bleeping it out for our audience. Right. Yeah. And I think... I mean, we've got several examples of this over the course of this episode, but it seems to me that there's this idea that localism really is about what community you're a part of or not a part of and what information is within that community and then how that information enters and leaves that community and who gets to decide that and what kind of information is kept inside of a community and then who are the gatekeepers to entering or leaving that community of people. Like, what about with Allison's guidebook story? Yeah, I mean, she, you know, she, to me anyway, it seemed that she was kind of surprised when we asked her, you know, have you heard that this, these local crags were published? And she didn't seem to know that, uh, which to me, I read that as, that was information that well, seemed, she had just learned it. She right? had just learned it, yeah. correct. To me, that felt like information that she thought should have stayed within a certain community of people, and it had left through a mechanism that she wasn't aware of and didn't necessarily approve of. So, I mean, yeah, there's how you set those community guidelines and how you set those gatekeepers is, I think, what we've been interested in this whole time. And it's a tricky thing to pin down. Right. And for Allison, too, that's a particularly interesting example, right? Because she mentioned that the people who created the the crag in question were West Siders, like they came from the West side of the state. And yet, they chose as their community the Leavenworth climbing community. Like even though they originated in this in a place that wasn't Leavenworth, and they maybe went home to a place that wasn't Leavenworth after developing these these routes, they shared that information with the chosen community that they had that they had picked. And one wonders perhaps if, you know, I think it just I think it just expands this notion that local information is tied to a community and it's it that information is kept or released as a result of this community. Right. And I think where Allison lands on it is that you can be a steward of that community and that is enough to grant you uh, status, right? She doesn't necessarily, she mentioned several times the fact that a lot of times quote unquote locals in Leavenworth are climbers who moved there within the last year, but she recognizes that they moved there because it obviously spent a lot of time there before really loved the place and decided that they wanted to invest in making it their home. So to her, it's not necessarily essential that you are living in that place. So you can still claim to be part of that community and, and enter into it um, if you spend enough time and energy, which is what we heard from Gabe. Right. Yeah. So let's just, I think, to be clear about this, what we're talking about is how you become a member of these these communities, which which in this episode we've been calling like local communities or locals, like groups of locals, whatever. Like we've seen three pretty distinct explanations or versions of these communities right you just mentioned allison's like her her view of what her local community looks like is people who care like people who give a shit 
right, about yeah. Leavenworth. She, she gave the example of the Chilada story, which like is probably someone who lives in Leavenworth and isn't really contributing to the stewardship of the valley. And she was like, you know, maybe that person's a local here, maybe they're not, who knows. But, but there's this element of stewardship that she cares almost more about than where you live. Right. I mean, but Matt kind of had a different tact, right? Matt, he only was willing to share information with people that he thought he could trust with that information, which doesn't necessarily mean you have to live in that area, but it's a different way of setting, uh, you know, the boundaries around the community is like, do I trust that you have the skills and knowledge and respect, adequate, whatever those uh, sort of categories are, do you have all those enough that I trust you with this information? And if I don't, and if you don't, if you don't indicate that to me, if you don't show me that you know those things, I'm not willing to provide you all the information to access an area. Right. So for, so for Matt, it was kind of like, how have you demonstrated your trustworthiness in this information? For Allison, it was how have you demonstrated your stewardship, your caring of a place? And I think for Gabe, Gabe's in this position where he's in a new community and he's trying to figure out the where the gates are to entry. You know, like, for example, he talks about mountain biking. He's like, well, you know, you really got to get out and explore. You got to go find the trails. And there are some people who like, they'll be like, oh, you're not even, you know, you're no way you're a local if you haven't ridden XYZ thing or something like that. But nobody's going to show you that place. You have to go find it. You know, so there, so he's kind of discovering the landscape of where the communities are, where the boundaries are, and where the information lies in those communities. So it's, I think that it's, for me, the one of the takeaways from this episode is that this notion of information that's attached to a group of people is really kind of a powerful way to sum up this idea of locals. Because if you can look at what the community boundaries are and like who's in it and what information they have in it, you can kind of get a good sense for why certain community feelings come to be the way that they are. Sure, but I think it's sort of difficult sometimes to outline those uh, community boundaries and also to figure out what the repercussions are of widening them or, or making them smaller. Like, what does it mean to allow people who don't actually live in a place to still claim status right. versus really keeping it very geographically located? So to me, one of the things that I've been thinking about as a result of this episode is how do you set the boundaries on a local community and what are the consequences of making that bigger or smaller? So if you stick to geographic regions, what kind of uh, consequences does that have? And if you're willing to expand it, what does that mean for the access to the place? Are you potentially opening up to more people and is that going to degrade your experience there? Uh, we want to leave you with a story from Gabe, who spent some time as a guide in Alaska, who talks about uh, what does it mean for the guides there to count themselves as locals versus the actual... 30 people who live there year-round. And really, at the end of the day, all that matters is where you can get a good cheap beer. There's one other topic of localism which might be interesting to discuss, which is where the place that I've, I've had the most conversations about being a local um, out of anywhere, um, which was when I was in McCarthy. The short description is basically, like, there are only 30 people who actually live in McCarthy, but then there are, like, the population goes 200 in the summer because there are all these, like, seasonal workers and guys and stuff. And so then, and then there are all the tourists that come for the seasonal workers to, you know, do stuff for. Um, and so there's this like hierarchy of localism where to the, to the tourists, the guides are locals, but to the locals, the guides are tourists. Um, and so like, they're just, you know, there'd be like, this all brought like a whole like debate sprung up in town when there was like a locals only price, or something at the bar on a burger. And it was like, who gets the locals only price? Cause like, 
all the seasonal workers, they're just going to leave in September. They're not locals, but like, yeah, but they're also going to be here in two days, which means that they're not tourists. Um, and then, and there's like a lot of like keeping information close to, close to people's chests and like, Oh, you haven't done this. I'm not going to tell you this. Like if you haven't, you have to go figure it out yourself. Just like we figured it out ourselves. Um, and it's kind of a funny, it, it, it was kind of humorous in how like in like needing to give the people who really suffered it out all year, like more like a, a better title and, and uh, than the ones who were just there for six months. Well, folks, thanks for listening. That's what we've got for this episode. Yeah, I really appreciate all your time. We know it's been a little while since you heard from us, but we want to say thank you for sticking in there. Uh, we really appreciate all your support. Yeah, we, uh, we've been learning a lot about how to put this thing together. And uh, if you enjoy what you're hearing or you've got thoughts or feelings or emotions, uh, whether good or bad. So we, many emotions. Yeah, I know. I feel, feel that. Um, we'd love for y'all to leave us a review on iTunes. Um, as many stars as you want to toss at us, that'd be rad. Even just one star? Even Yeah, just we need just any stars. Really, yeah. That's what we're looking for. Um, and if you've got ideas for what we can cover in the future or folks who you'd like to hear us talk to, you can send us an email hey at topofilliopodcast.com. You can like us on Facebook. Instagram, maybe? Instagram. We don't have a Twitter. No, no so I don't know don't how do to. That. How do you tweet? Oh yeah, good question. We also want to extend a thank you to Matt, Allison, and Gabe, uh, three folks who you heard today, and all their time and uh, effort and interest in this kind of project and willingness to wait seven months to hear us make something. So thanks, guys. Yeah, thanks, guys. We're gonna leave you here with a message from our sponsor. And uh, if you have a sponsorship message that you want to leave with us, uh, go ahead and drop us a line, and we'll get that sorted out. Thanks for listening. This is Gabe from Santa Fe. Topophilia Podcast is brought to you by Blue Apron. Blue Apron delivers little packages of food to you so you don't have to do any work going shopping for yourself. And then there's even more packaging for you to throw out at the end. So that's something everyone can get behind. You can look for a discount code to Blue Apron at topophiliapodcast.com slash blue apron.